Welcome to the Highly Objective Podcast, where we talk to cannabis industry executives and investors and go into the weeds on recent news. Uh, my name is Robert Beasley, and I'm the CEO. I've been in this position since September of 2020. Um, I was hired originally as a consultant for the company in January of 20 and, and engaged in consulting services uh, to include a CEO search and then ultimately became the CEO. I'm a practicing, was was a practicing lawyer, and my practice included um, cannabis uh, company guidance, mainly standing up operations after they had received the uh, an award of a license in a various states, and I worked in multiple states to include um, setting up operations and forming the corporations and the financing facilities and so forth and so on. And ultimately, that led me to get a call from Fluent to come in and, and try to help them turn the business around which we were <clears throat> successful in doing, thankfully, and, and, and by a good bit of luck and hard work. Yeah, that's, that's interesting going from you know, an attorney uh, in, into an operating role and, and straight into the CEO role. Um, how, how do you think you know, that serves you differently versus some of the other cannabis CEOs that we have in the space? Well, it's, it's different in, in many ways. My, my legal business was commercial law, and so I served as an advisor capacity to many boards. I am familiar with corporate work. I also do a good bit of corporate litigation. And so I come at it from the legal side and from the business side. Um, I was deficient in the cultural side and, and do not come from the traditional, what we'd call legacy side of cannabis. Uh, in fact, I think I've confessed several times I was, I was not a user until I became, uh, until I became involved as a CEO. Um, and so um, I did help participate in drafting legislation in Florida, as well as the regulations. And that, that was my first turn at getting into the, um, the space. And so that helped me dive into the science behind it. Um, I have a science background and undergraduate degree and so forth. And I'm kind of somewhat of a frustrated farmer. So um, I was really interesting in the, in the plant side and the science side. And so um, I, it was a real quick convert over for me uh, because I was so interested in it that I spent nights reading and studying and, and, and quickly jumped into the operation side. Got it. And on that point, can you give us an overview of where Fluent is today in terms of the operational footprint? Um, currently, we are in uh, three states. Uh, we are in Pennsylvania, where we have a three-store operation in the South Central region. We are in Texas, where we're one of three license holders, and we are in Florida. Florida being our, our largest uh, anchor state with uh, store number 29 having just opened in Pensacola, Florida. Um, and so we are um, uh, vertical in Florida, vertical in Texas, and retail only in uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, one of the uh, aspects that I brought to the company was essentially contracting the company. We had to grow by contracting. Fluent had become like many companies uh, that chase licenses around the country in the early days had become very, very horizontally broad, but, but not very deep and really unable to develop its core assets, which I identified as Florida. <clears throat> we did also have Michigan last year, but we've since cut off those operations. Yeah, and, and, and I, I guess before we dig into the three active states, uh, just just quickly touch on on Michigan and exiting that state. Can you tell us more about that? Sure. Um, when I became involved, we were in the wholesale side of Michigan and working out of Bangor, Michigan, and we had, um, you know, this company had not really supported those operations, and so we gave it a 
uh, good college try for a year and, and then a subsequent year. And it took us in year two until year, year two to really get it dialed in. And so in year two, we brought out a, a very nice harvest, of high quality, good flour. But the price volatility in that state was tremendous. Uh, when you when you look at, you know, from an agricultural point of view, you're growing a crop at the end of the day. And that crop's going to have a certain anticipated yield and it's going to bring a certain market price. But when the market price has suffers from extreme volatility, then by the time you harvest, uh, literally the floor falls out from under you. And that's what happened to us two years in a row in Michigan. And upon looking into it, it was because essentially the regulators were not doing their job. When you're a highly regulated uh, entity, um, you, you're almost dependent on the regulators enforcing those regulations in which you're abiding by. And so we would see millions of milligrams of illegal product come into the state and be shuffled through the system, thereby you know, supply and demand takes effect. And when the supply gets magnified by millions of milligrams, the uh, price just drops. And so we had this precipitous drop in pricing across the state and, and it hurt many of the operators. And so we just decided to pull back from the state until it stabilized. Got it. That that makes sense. Um, so so next, let's jump into your core state, Florida. Um, so in Florida, you guys are, you know, I, I would say top six. So of course you have True Leaf with as of today, 124 locations. Then there's another bundle with Move, Cure Leaf, and Air. That's about 56 to 63 dispensaries. Certera's so at 45, and then Fluent, as you mentioned earlier, is at 29. So looking at Florida. How do you separate yourself from the pack? Um, how do you look at it in terms of increasing market share? And, and what's the outlook with new licenses coming online and potential adult use? Sure. Well, we are the fastest growing company. We grew uh, 59% market share last year. Um, we're holding in there at six. We've gone from number, I think, 14 to six. Um, we've done that through going back to the basics uh, and reaching balance. Um, the in a vertical state, you have three silo components of your operations. You have retail, you have manufacturing, packaging, production, and you have cultivation. And this company was tremendously out of balance, meaning it had more stores than the ability to feed the stores. So the first step of the process was to bring up cultivation, then bring up manufacturing to feed the stores, and then slowly start to titrate out more stores. Feeding the 20 that we had the day I arrived was my was my first goal. Once we achieved that goal, then we could continue to expand. We could put more stores on the ground now faster, but being able to keep a robust inventory in those stores to be price competitive is the goal, not to have more footprint. And so with that, we're growing. Uh, we have four more stores that are near completion. Those stores are have suffered from the same type of construction delays that, that everyone did during COVID, but uh, are now speeding up. We anticipate another store in the end of February, one in March and one in April. Um, and that is uh, we'll finishing I, what I would call the, the second generation of stores. And then we have cited three more stores. And so we're going to continue growing on the retail front, but that growth is, look, it needs to be looked at in viewpoint of our ability to feed the stores. And so at the same time, we're now needing to put on more production. As far as the market itself, we've had a lot of new entry into the market, um, and which has created a lot of new splash but not really a lot of increased competition. Um, we've seen Cookies and uh, Jungle Boys and some of these other bigger names out from California come in and they've had really somewhat of a failure to launch. 
at the same time, some of the other competitors that have come in on a much bigger scale with the, the Cresco deal now through Sunnyside, um, they've come in with adequate resources to uh, really hit the ground and expand footprint. However, they've kind of gone through the same construction hurdles that we have. And so um, there are obstacles to, to one company moving any faster than the other, even if, even if money is taken out of the equation of funding. Uh, and that's just the difficulty of being a, a vertical operation. Um, the future is interesting. I mean, TrueLeaf still rules the pack here. They were first mover and and had advantages to uh, you know to get on the ground, get a big footprint in the beginning. You know, we have TrueLeaf and then everyone else. As we look at our competition, we expect to continue to move up within the next year. We're still receiving the benefit of some of our production increases. So we anticipate to continue to move up the charts and take over the number five or four position in Florida by the end of this year. And then the real questions start to start to become pending, which is issues like going recreational. Uh, recently, the ballot initiative was the magic number was accomplished. Um, whether or not that uh, ballot initiative, just the number of signatures, reaches the level that can receive Supreme Court certification is still unknown. As you may know, that after the last uh, amendment in Florida that brought us uh, uh, THC, our, our medical cannabis, um, the percentages for getting on the ballot, the percentages to, to be approved by the Supreme Court increased, and not many have been approved since then. So certification will be a challenge still, although it's, it has good mo momentum at this time. That could be a game changer for Florida. Florida has 21 million people. We only have 780 or about 800,000 customers out of that 21 million right now. So we're really serving a subset of the population. And then in addition to that, um, uh, Florida gets 59 million visitors a year. And most of those go to Orlando or Jacksonville or Miami. And so we're starting to keep a perspective on um, that growth, which will not be organic. It will be exponential. And so we're excited about that possibility. And um, there's still plenty of business in Florida. There's talk of an additional 22 licenses. The department has been very slow to issue and roll out licenses. Uh, I do not expect their pace to continue uh, to accelerate so long as the current governor is in office. The governor has um, very, very carefully and very, very slowly allowed this program to develop uh, with no intentions of any kind of radical development. I think that trend will continue. So I think the space will continue to dominate by those who are in it now, and we'll continue to shuffle around and shuffle position between us, with all of us, of course, gunning for the number one spot. And going back to what you mentioned in terms of you're the fastest growing, if we look at cumulative growth rate based on THC milligrams dispensed, um, but you know, can we double click into that? And, and can you tell us more why customers are, are choosing Fluent versus other medical dispensaries in the state? So when I first looked at the market in January of 20, um, I started writing memos to the board. And the very first memo I wrote was, your company sells a fairly low volume of medium quality product. Good news, everyone in your state's selling medium quality product. Um, you know, Florida was not known for, um, I would call West Coast quality uh, flour. Although truly produced a bunch of it, they, they didn't really focus and their facilities aren't really designed to focus on on um, that higher end of genetic capability. And so we immediately set forth building a kind of what I'd call a craft artisanal type uh, grow facility, small batch rooms, 
adjusting the genetics out to allow them to really receive their highest genetic potential. And, and because of that, we started bringing to the market a high quality flower. Um, that high quality flower started to um, get attention. Consumers started to become more educated as to what the difference is between low, mid and high quality. And we started to pull market share because of that. Now we did this in a time period when there was no cookies, there was no jungle boys uh, and some of the others. Since then, others have come in and they started preaching this high quality flower concept. But when we started it, we were the only one. And so we, we picked up a good bit of market share through that. The other aspect is um, some of our derivative products and just our service. Um, you know, we're really excelling in service. Um, we're, each store has its own hometown feel to it. Each store has its own base. And so because of that, you know, we're trying to become a local store, even though we have you now 30 of them on the ground. Some of your competitors and, and even someone like Trulip has sort of taken this approach where they're selling their own brands in stores, but also bringing in brands from out of state for licensing deals. What's your view on, on that? And I don't think Fluent today has any licensing partnerships, right? We have one. Uh, we have one with Smokies. It's a great group of guys out of Oregon and they do our edibles and they do our, um, um, our agave syrup, which is absolutely outstanding. Um, but we have not done branding as to the other derivative products. Now on the flower side, we have one as well. We have Freedom Town. Um, Freedom Town guys uh, are a group of uh, legacy OG grower, growers that were known in Florida already. I actually met them out in Oregon when I was working out there and, and was connected and brought them into Fluent. And they're the ones running our um, <clears throat> Sweetwater facility, which, as I described before, is kind of our small batch craft facility. And they're, they're primarily responsible for our move towards high quality flour. So we have those two brand relationships. But if you notice, both of those quote, brand relationships also provide products and services. Smokies d delivers the recipes, the mixtures, the batches, and so forth. And Freedom Town actually advises in the growing of the flower and provides advice on the genetics and selection of genetics. So those are more than brands. Those are, um, those are contractors and advisors. Setting that aside for a minute, um, I have been approached by all of the brands, I think, and I've had to disappoint a lot of people because the advertising rules in Florida are very, very strict. Um, what we can and can't do. The Fluent shelves have Fluent branded products. And the department was very strict on that for a long time. So no logos. Uh, all of the things that make up a brand, colors, logos, imagery, all of those things that identify a brand are not allowed in the packaging and then on the products. We can't do billboards. We can't do radio ads. We can't do television ads. We can't use Facebook. So, so all of a sudden we're advertising inside of a box. And so all of the things that a brand brings to you for which they're going to want five to 10 to 15% for, you don't really get the true benefit of. And so we've turned away a lot of brands. Now, is there room for brands in Florida? Sure. It's starting to develop. It's starting to come on, but those brands that are going to be successful are like the brands we, the two brands we have. They bring more than just slapping their name and logo on a box. They have to bring new product lines. They have to bring new delivery mechanisms. They have to bring new genetics. They have to bring something else other than, um, other than just their name and logo. And there's a, there's a lot of uh, white box um, products out in California and out West where different brands are being slapped on it. I've seen it myself. There's, you know, five brands. It's the same underlying product. 
and one market's better than the other. One has a catchier slogan. One maybe uh, feels a little cooler. But at the end of the day, it's it's basically the same product, and, and that will not fly in Florida. And so it's kept a lot of brands out. That makes sense. That you're looking for something beyond just uh, a brand, a logo, some marketing support. There has to be some sort of shared resources, some consulting, some know-how that you feel that you can't bring in internally. That's correct, because all of those other things that you just described aren't allowed anyway. And so it, 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 there's not enough value in it for either side. Yep, totally makes sense. And then next, I'd like to kind of just you know talk about your other two markets, uh, PA and, and Texas. Um, obviously, in this environment, and, and probably it's been this way for the last two years, uh, capital allocation has to be a, a very you know big priority at, at every MSO. Um, so you know, just for me, outsider looking in, it seems like there's been more focus, obviously, on, on the course date. Um, you know, you do have a footprint in PA, but then also Texas feels like it hasn't been developed as much, even though I know you guys are, are launching a delivery center this year. So let's first talk, talk about PA. You know, you, you have one of the 50 dispensary permit license and three uh, dispensaries, as you mentioned, in the South Central region. Um, any plans to kind of increase that uh, or, or is that, you know, via M&A and, and so not very interesting for Fluent today? So both Texas and PA represent potential. Uh, when I was cutting, when I was cutting, um, neither of those got cut because they represent a tremendous amount of potential for this company. Um, they're both uh, PA is kind of on idle, if you would. We're continuing to work on the efficiencies of the three stores. Well, go back one. My very first step in in PA was to get three stores open. Uh, this company held a license to open three stores, but only had one open, and it was performing very well. And so. You know, year one, year two for me was to get two more stores on the ground and open within our legal area. So we did that. We opened Mechanicsburg and then we opened Anvil. So now we've accomplished phase one, which is turn it from one, one store operation to three. That magnifies our buying power, our inventory control power. And, and, and now as we continue to tweak out the logistics support and sales support for those three stores, our PA revenues are increasing. Our PA bottom line is increasing. So PA now has gone from um, kind of a holding position to a contributor to our top and bottom line. That's a good thing. And, and, and so now what? Um, well, uh, two different directions. One is kind of a wait and see. Legalization is debated uh, as far as adult use. It has become a wave across that region of the country coming to PA. Um, there was a time period not too long ago where everyone practically guaranteed it to occur. Um, and now that guarantee is a little softer, but it's still strongly advocated that it is likely going to go into adult use. Looking at the various adult use models and um, I would say variables, uh, you have a couple things going there. One is in the variables that I've looked at, with adult use comes the possibility of more dispensaries. A three-store footprint is, has its own limitations, and so if we go adult use in PA, and then we get five more dispensaries, which is one of the proposals. Then I go from three to eight, three to eight, without anything more. Just the, the fact that I'm there, I'm standing there when it occurs, and that allows me some growth. Um, and so, and then of course, going from medical to recreational um, allows me growth at the exact same time. So if I just stand still in PA and do nothing, and this occurs, then I ride this wave. PA is a tremendous cannabis state. It, it, it is a, you know, known as a working class or blue collar state, and, and maybe it is, but at least in our region, 
Our ticket prices are very high. There's a lot of embracing of cannabis and cannabis use. Uh, it's very accepted within the communities and people are willing to spend money on it. And so I like PA, I wanna stay there. And so I'm just kind of holding tight. Now, if I don't just sit and wait, the other thing we could do that we're working on now is to go vertical. Um, one of the benefits of having inherited essentially a, a train wreck of a vertical operation in Florida is we had to retool it, work it out, become efficient and be competitive or die. And we succeeded. And so there were a lot of lessons learned there. I'm learning now that um, other states that aren't inherently vertical, um, there's a lot of struggle going on for various levels of operation. And so when we look at a state like PA and some of the things going on, there's a, there's a lot of uh, improvements in the system. And there's a lot of ways we could go vertical, if you would. And, and it just seems simple to us. But of course, there's a lot of operators struggling. Part of that struggle, of course, is what's happened to the independents, uh, the mom and pop cultivation centers. Um, as the big guys built out their facilities and as there's been consolidation of the retail stores, some would suggest a consolidation that was never intended to occur. We now have competitors that have 20 plus stores when 12 was the limit. So as that has occurred, essentially the wholesale market has been uh, greatly drawn up. There's a lot of mom and pop cultivation centers that were dependent on that wholesale market and now their buyers have gone away because their buyers are growing their own product. And so there's opportunity for us there. We have shelf space. They have the ability to grow. And so I'm working on two or three different possible arrangements where we can combine those efforts and possibly become more vertical in nature. That would allow us to move their products to our shelves or which would now be possibly our products and then also increase our margins. Because the other ramification of the big guys getting bigger there and, and maybe going beyond what was permitted is, you know, I still, uh, PA is a, is a wholesale state. And so our shelf is a variety of products. Um, I'm, some of my products are competitors that are larger MSOs. And now they're starting to price uh, crunch us now. So we're now getting to where we can't buy for wholesale for uh, less than what they're selling it for retail. So there's a big squeeze going on. Uh, I've been told the legislature's aware of it, that the department's aware of it, and, and that, that help is on the way. So I think we'll just sit tight and wait on that help to come to some degree. And, and going back to what you mentioned about how some of these larger MSOs have been able to increase or limit beyond, I think you said, 12. Uh, and and I, I do remember that being a cap, which is why you know I'm also surprised that someone like um, you know True Leaf, I, I think maybe now with the acquisition of harvest that had been operating in PA has more than, than the 12. Um, how, how are they able to like legally get around that cap? I don't know. Um, I wasn't involved in that transaction. I don't spend a lot of time paying attention to uh, policing my competitors. Um, you know, I'm, I'm too busy with my head down in our own operation. Um, I just know that it's highly complained about. Um, it, it could be that they did everything legally and they did everything by the book and it's the regulatory authority. Remember what I said about Michigan earlier. When you are highly regulated, your regulator becomes, your regulating entity becomes your business partner. You are dependent on them to do their job and to follow the rules. And if they don't, um, and then one party doesn't, then you're at a disadvantage. And, and that is just the consequence of being in a highly regulated industry. I'm not suggesting that uh, the Truly Harvest deal did anything wrong or inappropriate. Uh, I'm sure they followed every rule and, and that the department um, signed off on it. 
Um, however, if the plan was no one could have more than 12 and one has 20 something, uh, it's, it's an advantage and that advantage needs to be reconciled. Yeah, no, especially with what you're mentioning in, in terms of them being able to sell in retail for a lower price than what you're able to buy wholesale. I mean, <laughs> you just can't compete with that. So talk about Texas. Um, so, you know, kind of similar positioning, it, it seems like we're fluent there in, in terms of waiting to develop out, given that you're one of three, along with Texas Original and I think Parallels, the other one, right? We're one of three. I'm, I am super excited about Texas. I just got back from there. I've now been appointed to the Regulatory Advisory Committee by DPS which allowed me to sit in the room with them and talk to that agency and, and form a relationship with our regulatory partners. Um, I really, I really like the attitude of DPS. Um, it's a, it's a funny thing, you know, when a department gets quote, quote stuck with a program by the legislature, you know, they could take it many different ways, but uh, DPS has attacked it in true Texas uh, style. They, uh, uh, the director came in and said, well, we represent, we, 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 uh, we uh, regulate and control the state troopers, the Texas Rangers and guns, and now marijuana. <laughs> and so uh, it's kind of a which one of these things doesn't belong scenario. But uh, then he went on to affirm that <clears throat> while they may not have asked for it, they're going to do the best they can. And, and they are. They, are um, they really, really care about having a successful program and doing exactly what the legislature intended, which is bringing this uh, medicine to the people of Texas. Um, <clears throat> it's it's really in its infancy. They've been saddled by a bill that is representative of kind of a southern state where yeah, there was a lot of sausage made to get it out, and it has a lot of issues with the bill itself. You know, of course, you know the THC value, and then the restriction on one dispensary per licensee, and and so I was asked to join the panel. I've now been to the first meeting, and um, it, there's a lot of work to do, but they are receptive and willing, and that's all you can ask for. As far as the market goes, um, during my visit there, of course, I was at our facility. Um, I spent some time in the major hubs of Texas, and it's a phenomenal state. You know, 31 million people versus 21 in Florida. Houston alone has 7 million people. It's growing like 5, 6, 7% a year. I think it's the third fastest growing city in the country. Um, you know, the retail presence in Houston is phenomenal. Uh, and so understanding Texas and its scale is important to being there and, and, and building a model. Um, my purpose of my trip, uh, part two, was to locate a couple uh, satellite delivery centers to understand the dynamic, to meet with some doctors and understand what their struggles are and, um, and get Texas rolling. Um, Texas Original has done a good job with their, with their start. They have, I think, two stores. Um, but, you know, they're they're having to struggle being a pioneer by themselves in, in a big state. Similarly, um, Goodness Growth, which is, I believe, parallel, they're, they're struggling being a pioneer in a big state. It's going to take all of us to open that state up. And the time is now. Uh, it, it's, you know, 1% by volume or by weight is, um, it's not the best, but it, it works. We can get products on the shelf now. Right. And, and you mentioned sort of, I think Texas is similar to Florida in 2016. Um, so I don't know if you can draw complete parallels there and, and say that medical sales will start um, to a much bigger scale in two years, or, or were you looking at, you know, this, this real expansion of the program? When, when do you think that happens? So 
it is it is very very similar to Florida back in 2016, and and the the key part is is the grassroots effort that's needed. You have to literally build your own customers um, because just saying the conditions are available is part one. Then the physicians have to be available. You know, there's not with with only now there's there's over 40,000 now, but uh, spread out over a state like Texas, that's a very small number. Um, and so there's not enough economic drivers right now for a physician group to dedicate their full time to servicing the these potential patients. And so we have to now be the driver. We have to get the word out, so to speak, do marijuana or cannabis awareness days. You know, do you have conditions? Here's a physician. And, you know, we've got to literally do the networking and connect all the pieces so that access to the system is more readily available. This is on us. And so with a state the size of Texas, growing it uh, is going to be a factor of it being grown by those for which are responsible, and that's the licensees. This kind of leads us down to should there be more licenses? And I think it surprised everyone when I said that I welcomed the issuance of more licenses. Um, it's a big state. We're all pioneers, and, and, and pioneering is tough work and very expensive work. And in the early days in Florida, we started with seven. And there was no sense of com competition at all. In fact, there was a sense of we're all in this together. We've got this massive state to develop in this system. And, you know, we're all pioneers here. And I feel like that's the right answer for Texas. Having said that, just issuing more licenses without removing the regulatory barriers is not going to do us any good. And so my position was, sure, maybe we need some more licenses. I, I, I have no objection at all. It sounds, it sounds you know, anti-logical or anti-competitive for me to say that. But it's such a big state that you need more players in the game to generate the momentum. But first, you've got to remove the regulatory roadblocks to doing so. For instance, one license, uh, one location per licensee, and that location has to be connected to your grow facility. So that means I can have a store, and my grow facility is in Schulenburg, Texas. It's a lovely little place that no one is going to drive to to pick up their medication. And so I have to do something different. And if and if it's one license or one store per license, then if you let 100 licensees in, you only have 100 stores. And so we have to start removing some of these uh, regulatory bottlenecks and legislative bottlenecks in addition to possibly letting more licenses in. So, you know, with me being on the group now, uh, I have been supportive of new licensees coming in. I do not fear the competition. Um, and the, the important thing about that is we can spread out and really start to develop Texas um, to be a, a viable state. Next, next up, you know, we'd love to kind of talk more about the the financial picture for Fluent. You know, you, you mentioned kind of coming in uh, in 2020 to turn the business around. Uh, in 2020, revenues of 52 million, adjusted EBITDA of 10 million. In 21, it was 65 million for revenue and. 19 and a half million for adjusted EBITDA uh, forecast for, for last year, 2022, uh, revenue of 85 to 90 million with adjusted EBITDA of, of 28 million. Um, so certainly we've seen margins go from 20% to 30% in 21, 32% last year. So would you say your work is kind of nearly done on, on sort of turning the company around or sort of where are you expecting for 23 from a revenue and, and adjusted EBITDA and, and I guess more importantly, uh, a margin standpoint? So I have, I have not entered, issued publicly 23 guidance yet and, and certainly wouldn't want to do so here um, 
Um, but I can tell you that um, we had two facilities that contributed to our 22 success. One was our Polk City facility, and the other was what we called New Tampa. Both of those had one or maybe two harvest in 22. And so we anticipate um, continuing to realize the growth in our production side. At the same time, as I indicated to you, we'll probably have six more stores by the conclusion of 23 on the ground producing revenues. And so all of that would lead to the natural conclusion that we anticipate a, an additional um, uh, increase in growth off of our 22 end of the year numbers. And our 22 numbers are going to come in right on guidance. Um, you know, I adjusted guidance um, in the start of Q3. Um, I adjusted revenues down slightly due to the hurricane and the failure to get those stores online. Um, but I maintain the same EBITDA guidance, and, and I anticipate we're going to come right in on those numbers. A Q3 adjustment was close enough to the end to allow me to, to see the end. January has started a little bit of a slump for the entire market. Um, reasons a little bit unknown, but it, we just came out of the box a little slow in January, and our January hasn't sales have, were not what we expected. Now, February has picked back up. Um, I, I'd love to tell you the reason for that, but I'm not exactly sure. Um, and, but, you know, it's one of those things, if everybody, if everybody dips together, then, then there's market forces out there that, you know, need to be accommodated for, um, or at least observed. Um, as far as our growth, we will continue to grow. We will not likely grow at the rate that we have been. Um, we're now at the top tier of the pyramid, you know, we're number six and the competition's pretty steep, 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 steep between two and five. Um, with number one, as I said before, part being pretty much out of reach within our current scenario. We're now entering a phase of organic growth. Um, access to capital has really dried up. Um, the rates um, have increased and just the general uh, interest in supporting cannabis from a loan scenario is, is really dried up, especially at the, the scale that we're looking for. In addition to that, we have, um, uh, you know, we have suffered like the rest of us from decreased share price so our share price is such that you know doing a large capital raise is not likely um so we're sitting in an organic growth mode um which allows us to trickle along and put a few stores on here or there and um continue to stay cash flow positive and um kind of wait for the next big uh thing um as far as what that might be <clears throat> i'm not sure we um, went through a period uh, when I first came on board. Um, you know, literally, we were just fixing the fixing the store up to sell it, uh, and then as these um, M and A opportunities kind of came and went, and we became bigger and stronger and bigger and stronger, the nature of our op offers changed. We went from you know kind of um, being surrounded by vultures to then being entertained by legitimate players that were paying legitimate numbers, and we were excited about the possibility of those deals working out and. And they didn't work out in the end of uh, 21 and uh, and then again in 22. And that was because of the buyer's share prices tanked. Um, again, cannabis stock volatility is its own podcast. And maybe you should do one one day. But uh, it has a, we, we are severely disconnected from our own financial performance. Um, I put up numbers that are incredible for any other company on the stock market and numbers that would um, have people piling in with money and yet our shares go down when Chuck Schumer fails to get the safe banking passed again. So it, it's, it's completely disconnected from our economic performance and entirely connected to regulatory events. Uh, but that's another podcast. So for us, 
um, what's interesting and exciting is the nature of our approaches have changed. Uh, uh, the, the approach we get now isn't just, well, you've got good bones and we'd like to take the company and, and, and dump everything else out. Now it's, you guys have proven you know what you're doing. You're good operators. You're efficient. You're lean. You're on the rise. And the companies approaching us, they have secured licenses or they have facilities in other states, and they, they're just not quite getting it. Um, they, they can't quite get it together. Or they've overexpanded and they look like Fluent did two years ago. And so it's, it's a huge compliment to our management group. Um, it's, we're now being recognized as being the ones that know what we're doing. And that's its own valuable asset in this industry. And so now the approaches we're getting are more like combination type mergers where, you know, we're not being bought, but we're combining and we're the surviving entity. We're exploring those. There's going to be one that's the right one. I don't know which one, um, but those opportunities are super exciting. So what, what's your plan for, for managing cash burn and, and sort of, you know, where cash is, where debt are and, and sort of upcoming maturity on any of those debts? Our debt is, I think, 2025 maturity. Um, while we struggled at first to meet some of the covenants, we, you know, it was a real, it was real difficult. Uh, we had a series of covenant step ups over time liquidity covenants where we had to maintain certain liquidity liquidity amounts and those stepped five hundred thousand dollars every quarter <clears throat> which was a, a a tall task for a company that was on the rebuild but we achieved that uh last step in q4 of 22 and uh we have no concerns of any of those covenants or um or meeting the payments or anything along those lines um we are about to resolve our 21 taxes which means by by q2 of 20 Three, we will be um, um, completely caught up on 21 taxes. We haven't yet uh, finished the 22 return. Uh, and that's rare for an MSO. A lot of MSOs are riding a, a huge tax liability um, because it's, it's you know, in a, in, a, in a market where capital is not available, it's one of the better loans you can get as borrowing from the IRS. Um, and maybe there's a little hope there with some of those larger outstanding numbers that there's going to be a forgiveness or of 280 or something. I'm not sure what the plan is, but we're paying our taxes. And so we're financially strong and solid. Um, you know, if we can't raise capital through equity issuance, then uh, borrowing money becomes a, a possibility. And, and maybe we borrow a little more on our line. We have another additional amount available to us. Um, but I'm a little bit debt averse. And um, I like where we sit. It took us a long time to get here and a lot of hard work. And so you know, at some point when you get on top of your bills and you get cash flow positive, you're, you're real reluctant to step back off again into a debt scenario, although recognizing that organic growth is, is not going to keep us competitive in this market. So um, there needs to be a workout there. Uh, again, it's either through some uh, merger scenario, through uh, maybe bringing a couple small capital raises online, uh, maybe borrowing a little bit off the line of credit. <clears throat> Not sure quite yet what the right answer there is. You know, we recognize that we need to do it. Um, it's just trying to find the right avenue that doesn't get us back into um, the same issues um, in which we found. I found the company. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty impressive what what you've accomplished the last two years in terms of growing top line 30, 35 percent, uh, having you know even a margin that are twenty five to you know mid thirties. Uh, also getting to cash flow positive and, uh, as you mentioned, not having a deferred tax liability uh, with a presence in, in three, uh, you know, of the top five states from a population and, and 
medical market standpoint. Um, so I, I think the investment highlights for the company looks pretty attractive that a lot of people may not be paying attention to. Um, so that leads me into sort of my next question, you know, uh, what, what could you do to sort of drum up more interest, um, you know, and, and exposure to a company and a publicly traded stock like Fluent? Like what's the options for a publicly traded MSO today that is sort of, you know, on the CSE, on the OTC, um, you know, because that, that's at least something you can control a little bit. I, I know it's uh, the fundamentals don't trade exactly in line with where the, the stock price is and it trades probably more in momentum like other cannabis stocks. But what can you do as, as a publicly traded company to sort of, you know, get that stock price up? I don't know the answer to that. Um, um, I know this. Um, I believe that when I came in as CEO, I should watch it every day and pay attention and be able to um, answer for it and be accountable for it. And then frustratingly watched when we did really well, um, the stock would go down and there would be sometimes when I would have issues in the facilities and so forth, um, and the stock would be going up. And I studied it and studied it and studied it. And I realized that while, you know, in a lot of industries, there's maybe plus or minus relationships to the economic performance and a little bit an outside factor aspect to it. In our industry, it's almost entirely outside factors. Um, you know, I, the great example I use is uh, back in October of 22, I believe it was, maybe September, uh, we had an extractor go down and it was devastating for us. We, we literally lost our manufacturing capacity and our inventory levels were dwindling. Now, the customers on the shelf, on the, on the stores didn't notice it, but I had many sleepless nights standing there staring at this stainless steel piece of equipment trying to figure out how to get it back up and our stock steadily going up the whole time. Um, and that was because there was talk of the State Banking Act passing. Um, and so then we fast forward a little ways, um, and we're having a pretty rough go of it in our cultivation centers and our stores, and we're delayed on getting some stores open. And again, it's just a struggle. I mean, just getting a company turned around is a struggle. Having some gloom days, our stock starts taking off again. I look at it, and it's because President Biden did his rollout marketing gimmick where he pardoned the, the pr federal prisoners and um, then suggested that the uh, DEA was going to look at descheduling. Um, I had nothing to do with any of that. Um, and so when we go up, it's disconnected for me. And when we go down, it's disconnected from me and my efforts. And so what do I do? Well, we continue to try to seek coverage. We've had a couple companies come on as coverage. And, and when I read their coverage, um, John DeCourcy is covering us. Uh, Beacon is now covering us. And I look at those coverage analysis and those guys are great. I mean, they really do their homework. I mean, they ask me all kinds of questions that I would never even thought would be relevant to their work. And they dice the numbers, they run it past me and they say, is this accurate? And, and they want it to be 100% accurate and they just really do a great job. But then they publish very accurate, very well-written uh, assessments, um, which are all positive. I mean, everything about this company from the outside is positive. The daily grind is not always positive, but no company is. Um, and the stock does nothing. And so I don't actually know the answer to that question. And if you find it out, I'd appreciate you calling me back. Yeah, no, I think a, a lot of people in your position struggle with that answer. Um, I guess that leads me to another question then. It, is there then still a benefit to being publicly traded if you're a canvas company today? Like, would you guys consider delisting uh, given that it might save you some public company costs or, or what are some of the thinkings around just advantages of being public? I struggled with this in the very beginning and concluded initially 
that this company should have never gone public. Um, I am, you know, dealing with a legacy of decision making from the former CEO, which is what I'd call a startup founder. And I guess going public was the big part of the green rush. And so there was a rush to going public. And this company, looking at what I can see internally, was not ready. I don't know what it looks like when a company is ready, but this company was not ready. And then I look at the daily um, and quarterly struggles we have with all the administrative administration burden of being a public company, all the reporting requirements, all of the difficulties in dealing with being a public company, all of the shareholder reporting requirements, which add cost to our operations. And I think, I wonder what the benefit of being public is. <clears throat> I understand you can raise equity, but in this market, when we're disconnected, our share price is disconnected from our financial performance, then we're not getting that benefit either. And so should this company remain public? It is an open question. I think that really has to do with what that next merger or acquisition or partnership looks like. If we were approached by a viable entity that was well-funded that um, wanted to put together and, and take it back private, and, it, and the numbers worked out to being good for the shareholders, these shareholders affluent that are you know diehard and stuck with us the whole time, um, they deserve the compensation that they that they invested in. They deserve the big payoff. And if going private means they get paid out in a way that's a good return on their money, then I support it 100%. If, if staying public and the market kind of uh, starts to become more connected to our performance, and um, if that was the result, then I'd be okay with that too. What, what I need is for there to be a recognition of the value. Our market cap at this point, and, and, and if you added up our share value, it wouldn't even equate to the what we could sell our Texas license for. And so, you know, for that, you'd, you'd throw in Florida and Pennsylvania for free. And so it's just not a fair reflection of the economic value or, 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 or asset value of this company. And that's a disappointment. It's a disappointment for me. It's a disappointment for our hardworking management team. And of course, a disappointment for our shareholders. Yeah, no, and, and just to kind of point out where the market cap is today, it's it's 31 million uh, today, and and yeah, you know, the stock price kind of goes up and down because uh, it's about 13 and a half uh, cents right now. So yeah, I, I agree with you. There's probably between if you purely just sold your operations in in those three states, uh, you're going to get more than your market cap. Um, you know, last question. I get calls periodically from investors that say we're looking at uh, maybe tendering an offer for your company. And I, and I first say, if you're if you're basing your economics on our market cap, then you, you are you are totally out of the ballpark, and and it, it, it ends up being a short conversation. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, definitely has to be a hefty premium based on if you did a sum of the parts valuation on the company and probably what it could fetch uh, privately. So, so last question for you with, you know, 2023, it sounds like I, I got the idea that you guys are just going to go, you know, try and stay cash flow positive, keep focusing on organic opportunities. Um, what, what else is in store for 2023? We have um, um, two new methods of extraction that have come online. We've got BHO now in Florida and um, obviously and live rosin, which is a mechanical method of extraction. This opens up a, a whole wide range of products. I would call them more derivative or concentrate products, which are more towards the recreational base user. Um, so we're soon to launch a series of products, not just one, but an entire line, if you would, based off of those methodologies of extraction. Uh, we have chocolates coming to the market in a few days. Um, that'll be exciting. Um, I've been slow to embrace chocolates because I was worried about shelf stability in Florida. 
but we've, we figured that out. And so chocolates are coming out in Florida. Um, and then our biggest uh, effort will be Texas. Um, you know, physician rollout program. We're going to start hitting concerts and events. We're going to start holding cannabis awareness days. We've got a store location opening. Um, and so you'll hear a lot about Texas. And I think we'll show people how uh, you can build a, a cannabis market. Uh, in Texas, because we did it in Florida. So doing it in Texas is not going to be easy, but we understand the formula of it. So we'll spend a lot of our time, energy, and funds uh, building Texas 